Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by Mick DSP, professional audio plugins. For over 15 years, Mick DSP has continued producing industry-acclaimed and award-winning software titles. The podcast is also brought to you by Slate Digital, all the pro plugins, one more monthly price, and now your hosts, Joey Sturges, Joel Wanasek, and Al Levy. Hey, welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. How are you doing? Awesome. Fantastic. <laughs> Fantastic. We have a, a special guest joining us from Ontario. Ontario. Is that how you say that? Ontario? That's right. Yeah. Welcome, Jordan. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, guys. If you guys don't know who Jordan Valeria is, you should because he's worked on a bunch of records that you should have heard, such as bands like Intervals, guitarist Nick Johnson, Structures, Counterparts, a lot of uh, plural band names. Um, <laughs> also, it's, yeah, I, I got stuck with the plurals as well at one point in time. It's too bad um, that they're not known as the Silversteins. I know. That, yeah. that would have yeah. been perfect. <laughs> that would definitely, and the the Johnsons, um, <laughs> that would definitely complete the complete the cycle, but uh, he's also well known for being an educator like us. He runs Hardcore Music Studio, and you can go there at hardcoremusicstudio.com, where he has a badass mixing course called, as you guessed, Hardcore Mixing. And if you don't have it, you should have it. Also runs a weekly podcast called SJV, and you make software too, right? Uh, not no software, apps. but some drum. Oh yeah, yeah, that's a different business. Do some apps on the side, and also have some drum samples out there too. So you just do a ton of shit. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> have you always been a, uh, I guess, a Renaissance man type person, or is this something that happened recently? I've always been kind of. Uh, I mean, I guess you could say kind of entrepreneur at heart. I mean, even the music stuff, like just coming through high school and stuff, I knew I wasn't going to go to university and get a normal job. You know, I knew I wanted to do something in music and ended, ended up doing the studio stuff. And then I'm constantly just interested in new ideas and new business ideas and technology and everything. So, yeah, I guess you could say I've always been kind of on this path. Do you get bored easily or, or like, what is it? Why do you think you're into it? Uh, that's a good question. I don't know if it's that I get bored easily, but I think, I think I'm just a, f a fast starter on things. So I I'm good at like starting something from scratch and just, you know, taking it from zero to one. That's kind of like my forte is I just, I, if I get excited about something, I'll take action and, and do it right away and, and make something happen. That's what Joey or Joel, I don't remember which one of you guys said it, but isn't that the hot potato principle you guys used to talk about? Oh yeah. That's me. Hot yeah. potato. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's like, the the longer you hold on to your potatoes, the less you're doing. <laughs> right. Just get it off, you know. And and that's kind of a strategy you can use in a lot of different ways. And one of the easiest ways to implement that uh, right away is with your email. I'm constantly just replying to emails and trying to keep putting the ball back in someone else's court. You know, if someone that has tactic a, doesn't work on me, by the way. I know that um, delegating <laughs> bastard. <laughs> But yeah, basically just try to get everything off your plate so that you can clear space on your plate for more. I don't know if that entirely works for me, but um, and I'll just say that because sometimes I need to marinate on something for like a good week or longer. And then 
I find sometimes my best work comes like after I've had something just sitting around in my subconscious for a little while. But I guess for most things, I, I find that it's most productive to just do something about it the moment you get the idea. Just do something. Yeah start putting into the universe. I was going to say something about that, that whole fast start thing, because I think mixing is like the opposite of, of something that you can fast start. I mean, you start mixing something for the first time ever and you don't know what you're doing. Your results are going to be terrible, most likely. So I'm curious if you, Jordan, if you have anything that you could tell the listeners about, like, you know, what kind of, uh, instant actionable item could you do to kind of like keep the ball rolling to stay interested long enough in mixing to make it to that point where you're you know you're hitting those milestones because i think a lot of people probably start and and end Mm. in a week period and you know the the gravity of it all like how how hard it really is to get good i think pushes a lot of people out Mm. yeah that's that's a good point um yeah, it's hard to think of like one tip. I mean, for me, it was like, I guess I never got discouraged because maybe I, I never expected to be really good out of the gate. I just knew that like when I started recording and mixing, like I literally was was clueless. Like I had no idea about anything. It was like a year before I, I knew that like EQ plugins existed. You know, it was I was just like <laughs> plugging in mics and I thought it was all about just like put the mic in a good spot and play it well. And, and that was it. Like balance the faders. Yeah. I literally had no clue. And my, my stuff didn't sound that good, but like, I didn't, I don't know. I just love, I just love doing it. And I just, I kept moving on. I think maybe my main tip is like, it's okay to, to finish something and have it not be like top notch. You know what I, Like for me, finished is better than perfect. So I think a lot of people get hung up on like remixing and redoing the same thing like over and over for weeks and weeks when it would be better just to spend a few days, finish it and move on to the next project, you know, because that's a great point, I think, especially for mixing, because a lot of people, they sit around and they're like, well, I'm not getting better fast enough. And you're like, okay, well, how long do you spend on a mix? I'll give an example. Sometimes when we do nail the mix, a, a kid would be like, hey, I spent all month working on this track. And I'm like, I mixed like 60 songs this month. Right. You're screwing up because when you sit and you mix one song, you're not really learning a lot of different things. You're learning how to mix one song. What you need yeah. to do is you need to mix a lot of different material yeah. because when you mix a lot of different material, you run into a lot of different problems. You make a lot of mistakes. You run into things that are different and challenges that force you outside of your comfort zone. So when you really come in, you open up to a wide variety of stuff. It is so important just to finish stuff and then keep moving and the, you'll gain some momentum and et cetera. So you really have to, I'm a huge proponent of what you just said, Jordan. I think it's very important. Yeah, that's, and that's exactly where I was going, going with that. You, know, you just need to keep doing more projects. And you know, I always tell people like in my courses and stuff, you know, set deadlines, keep moving. Even if you're not totally happy with it, like you probably never will be like, you'll always think that you can do better and that's part of the game. And that keeps you moving forward. And yeah, you've, you've got to keep doing more work to get more experience and, and run into all those problems, like you just said. I'm just wondering, where did the idea, because that's great advice, and people have said that you actually are really, really great at teaching and giving advice. So like, where did that even come from? Honestly, I have no idea. Um, I, I just kind of... I think I feel the same way. (laughs) Yeah. I just, I think it came, the the main idea came from like when I was recording bands a lot, there would always be 
kind of one guy in the band, you know, who's, who has his recording rig at home and he's really interested in stuff. Right. And he's kind of sitting beside me as I'm engineering a record and he's asking me questions and this and that. And when we take a break, he's, you know, we're talking about it and I, I love talking about this stuff, you know, just, just hanging out and talking gear or, or techniques or whatever, anything about recording, making records. And those conversations just happened so easily. And so I just decided I was originally going to offer maybe like one-on-one lessons in my studio or something. And then I just kind of, you know, started learning about online stuff and decided to go that way instead. But I don't know. I think I've never thought of myself as like a good teacher per se. I just, I just talk about stuff that I know. And I don't know. I think that's kind of the, the key to to being a good teacher, I guess, is just to, to focus on stuff that you actually know really well. I mean, I'm sure if I was trying to teach something that I didn't know well, I would probably suck at it. So I think there's more to it than that, though, because I know that your material is very actionable. And that's also something that I've always done with my stuff. All my, I think my creative live courses did well from the start because I always made them actionable. And uh, everything we do on Nail the Mix is actionable. Like, that's kind of what sets us apart from a lot of other people is that all our stuff is actionable, actionable, actionable. There could be some dudes who are way further up the chain who will show you how they did something on this crazy board and just talk through it, but it's not actionable. Um, your stuff is very actionable. And so I think there's... There's more to it than just knowing the stuff. There's something about being able to communicate it in a way that makes sense for people who are living real lives, you know, who don't uh, don't have a five hundred thousand dollar board, right? For instance. So, out of curiosity, when you were first starting to put this stuff together, um, meaning the the educational content, how were you allocating your time between that? and the studio well it kind of came at an interesting time like i had just finished producing and mixing the most recent silver scene album and like you mentioned at the top of the show i have another app business on the side so i was busy with that so i kind of it's been like years and years of like i was pretty overwhelmed with music stuff and studio stuff and just almost burnt out. So I, I did this silver scene record and I was like, I'm going to take a little bit of time off from, from making records. I did some traveling, focus on some app stuff. And then kind of during that period is when I, I started creating the content. So I wasn't really balancing it with any other studio work at that point. And yeah, I just, I just started putting it together. I chose a mix that I thought would be relevant and, you know, just started putting videos together where I talk through it. And I mean, that, that's, that's pretty much it. Does that answer your question? Yeah, I think I just think it would be hard to do this stuff while working on records full time as a solo as a solo operator. Yeah. yeah, it would be. I quit recording bands to do this stuff mm-hmm. because I I don't see how I could possibly do. Both. Yeah, that's that's kind of similar to me. Even even before I had finished that last Silverstein record, I had I had way scaled back my tracking side of things. I was mostly just taking mixing projects. Um, so that was helping me with, with just time as well. Um, and I'm kind of in the same boat. I, I, I mix a few projects here and there now, like kind of based on, you know, things that I'm interested in, passionate in. And, uh, 
other than that, I'm focusing on the teaching. I think this is a good point to bring in an important lesson for everybody listening here, and that is opportunity cost, right? So everything you do comes at the cost or the expense of something else, right? So if you're engineering a lot and you want to mix, you know, you have less time for mixing. Or if you want to teach people how to mix, for example, you know, everything you do is a trade-off. So you can't clone ourselves, unfortunately, and we can't do two things at once effectively. So you kind of got to, uh, when you're going towards a goal, I guess is what I want to say is that you have to sort of pick a direction and go and kind of focus and double down on it and really, really, really dig in. Like when I wanted to mix and make the transition from tracking, I started turning down a lot of tracking work and started taking on a lot of mixing work. And even if I really wasn't working at the time, meaning that like there wasn't a lot of mixing work to take just because, you know, it, it's focusing, you know, so spend that time practicing mixing or training mixing or acquiring clients or things like that. So it's very important to think about opportunity cost because there's always a cost associated with spending your time, whether you're going to the bar, whether you're watching TV instead of learning how to, you know, improve your craft, etc. So you really, I think it, it's impossible for us all to be superhumans. We have to really learn how to balance. So, and that word is opportunity cost. Mm-hmm. A really good quote is that you can do anything you want in life, but not everything. So choose wisely yep. how you spend your time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's better to make a lot of progress in one direction than tiny progress in, in 10 different directions. Absolutely. I think that for people who are first starting out mixing, it's hard to, it's hard to do that because maybe they're overwhelmed with so many different options. Like what do they get a bunch of plugins? Should they get, outboard like what should they learn first should they learn how to make cool effects should they just work on gain staging like all these different things i think that all that all those different options cause analysis paralysis when someone is first learning how to mix it's helpful to have people tell them to a just uh focus on your gain staging for a little while forget everything else i think that that applies as much to learning something new as it does to picking a career path. And I'm curious though, now that you do have several things going, mm-hmm. but how do you allocate your time now? Like, do you make schedules daily or to-do lists or outcome lists or how do you get through the day? Yeah, I- I'm always trying to optimize that stuff. I Basically I have like, you know, a, a to-do app where I have a list of all the things you know, that I'm trying to accomplish over, over the week. And then what's the app, uh, OmniFocus. Uh, I've heard of it. I've heard it's great. Yeah. So usually, usually kind of the night before, or like, let's say at the end of today, I'll go on and write a list of like the most important things I want to get done tomorrow. And I'll, I'll set time limits or time deadlines to those things. And then a big thing is just like delegating. I mean, for my podcast, um, I've got a guy who, literally does the whole thing for me. So I just record myself answering the questions for the podcast. I send it all to him and he puts it all together and uploads it and everything. And that, that's a huge thing. Like, like there's no way I could handle doing all of the work for the podcast. I'm sure you guys have editors and stuff too. And oh yeah, so that's a big thing is just taking, I'm constantly trying to, to find the things that are like, not my highest like contribution, like where I could put the most, put my energy to get the most outcome from. You know, if, if it's not one of those things, I try to hire someone else to do that. Another thing is I just, just like clearing out distractions. So for a while now, I like I've just realized that between like eight in the morning and noon, I get the, my best stuff done. 
So I just, I literally just try to close out my email from those between those hours and I'm not perfect at it, but if I can just not check email, not check Facebook for the first few hours of my day, I can, it's like shocking how much you can knock out uh, in that. Do you like Tim Ferriss, Jordan? <laughs> yeah, for sure. That's straight out of four hour work week. I love it. Eliminate all distractions. Yeah. It's very, very, very important. Yeah. So that's it. It's hard to do. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's really hard. And like I said, I'm not perfect. Some mornings it, it gets away from me or I find myself like, you guys probably had this experience too, where you're like, you've got like a big thing to do that you're, you need to, you need to get done. And, and you find yourself like just procrastinating that and like using email and, and Facebook, you just kind of like automatically go to those things because really you're procrastinating the big, the big thing you need to get done. So it's just trying not to do that as much as possible. I think the two biggest momentum killers right now in the modern world are Facebook and pop-up notifications or push notifications. Yeah. That's what they call them on your phone. I have to turn those damn things off because if I sit there and I'm working or mixing or whatever I'm working on and focusing on, if that thing is sitting there, then you go over and you start getting involved and you read the chat or whatever, you know, cause you need that little dopamine rush. Yeah. The same with Facebook. If you don't log out of Facebook, you'll sit there, you'll check it like while you're exporting a file and then it'll be done in 45 seconds. And, but you'll still be on Facebook for the next 15 minutes and you'll be like, what am I doing? I'm literally just clicking around and like looking at nonsense. Yeah. <laughs> so it's really difficult. It's almost like a drug that you have to constantly fight because as soon as you cut that stuff out of your life and sit down and say, okay, I'm actually going to be productive during this period of time and here's what I'm going to accomplish. It's insane how much more you can get done when you're not sitting there screwing around on Reddit or Facebook or Instagram, et cetera. Yep, absolutely. And that goes, that goes for mixing stuff and recording like I even have this as part of my mixing course like the kind of the setup phase and and getting ready to mix and getting your mindset right like it's like right in my notes there you know put your phone in the back of the room like you'll be able to to stay in the zone for like hours at a time if you just don't have you know the notifications popping up and constantly taking you out oh man (laughs) (laughs) there's sometimes where uh, the notifications will make me want to throw my laptop across the room (laughs) Because uh, sometimes I leave them on because there's several important things going on at once where people do need me to respond. And I'll be trying to work on something that I owe everybody. And they're just going nonstop. And like 10 different people trying to get a hold of me. It literally makes me want to punch a hole through the screen. So <laughs> I have, every 20 minutes. <laughs> I have started uh, turning off notifications while while I do certain things now because I can't the like it's weird like the now I start to get angry when I start to get distracted so much Mm -hmm. because I just want to get something done Um, I think that Facebook is the single greatest thing ever and also the single worst thing ever for getting things done for me at least because I feel like our business, I wouldn't say it runs on Facebook, but it uh, Facebook is a huge part of why we're doing well in terms of traffic and community. It's, it's a huge part of it, and it's been a huge part of my audio career for years. And so, like, I have nothing but the utmost gratitude for Facebook existing. But at the same time, holy shit, what a time suck. 
<laughs> God, it's so easy to get carried away with it's it. It's the modern curse, and I don't feel like society has evolved enough yet to figure out how to totally deal with it. Because, I mean, I've read all kinds of studies about decreased corporate productivity and things like that. I'll give you an example. Like, I walk in the office in the morning, programmer walks in, the first thing he does is he hops on Reddit. I'm like, yo, are we going to get some coding done, or are we going to sit and look at Reddit all day? And he's like, yeah. Then he goes out for a smoke break, and he sits down, and he starts coding, and then he opens up Facebook, and I'm like, yo, code. He's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, it, it affects everybody. It, literally, every single person I know has this problem. Everybody I know that manages anybody in like an actual traditional corporate setting, they say that employee productivity is down because everybody sits there screwing around on Facebook all day. It's it's the challenge of the of this I think uh, decade really is how to conquer that and become productive, especially on an individual level. Because like when you don't have somebody sitting behind your back as an entrepreneur and you're your own boss, you're accountable only to yourself. So if you're wasting your time, again, going back to what I was saying earlier about opportunity cost, you are literally taking money out of your pocket and your family's pocket and just burning it. So. It's kind of like you got to have that little whip driver in your head, just like, get it, go, 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 work, work. You know, you can't like, I don't know, every time I'm on Facebook, I'm like, oh, get to work. You're wasting time, no small time. So it's very, very difficult. What a challenge. In the older days, when I was a kid and a teenager, the big thing was that the average like adult watches between like three to five hours of TV a night, something like that. Oh, yeah, definitely. That was like the thing before the internet that like, obviously they didn't have TV that they could watch like that at the office, but they would come home at like five o'clock or six o'clock and literally watch TV until they went to bed. And that was kind of considered like the modern curse, whereas they could have been playing with their kids or reading a book or starting a second business or whatever. Instead, they're wasting their lives watching TV. And I feel like that's the role that the internet has kind of assumed now. All right, I figured out our next business, guys. We're all going to team up. We're going to make an app that every time you open Facebook, it runs a current down through a wire and it electrocutes <laughs> you. So you stop checking social media. And then it has like a one-minute clearance time set every four hours where you're allowed to log in, but only for one minute. So it's like a red light, green light kind of thing. If not, it just shocks the crap out of you. <laughs> Anybody want to invest? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm down. I uh, I honestly wonder how some people get anything done. I think, I don't they know. They don't. <laughs> oh, okay. So. That's the problem. There's a lot of schools of thought sort of assumed here. And so I'm curious, you know, what, what are some books that you would recommend for people to check out that are trying to be successful, you know, at the intersection of the audio world and entrepreneurship? Yeah. I mean, uh, one that I read recently is called The One Thing, and it's it's talking about a lot of the stuff that we're discussing here is like kind of really figuring out what is out of all the stuff that you're doing on a day-to-day basis like what are what is the one thing that's actually moving the needle forward for you uh for whatever goals you have so that that's a good book there um let me think um i just heard ty lopez recommend that i i have not read that book yet but i'll add that to my list yeah it's a good one so like real quick oh when you're going through your normal jordan day Mm mm-hmm and you could be working on a course or developing an app or, I don't know, maybe taking a mixed project possibly. Yep. How do you figure out your one thing? I need time to, to just reflect, I think. I think the times when I, when I do my worst work, whether it's in the mixing world or just 
with online business stuff. It's when I'm just like, I'm head down for too long creating stuff and don't kind of take a break to just think about what's actually working here and what's moving the needle. I think that I try to like, a big thing for me is I, I try to wake up early in the morning and just, I don't work for like the first hour of the day. I just like, I read a book and I just try to like have some coffee and think about, you know, what's coming up. And a lot of times, like I'll have ideas of like, I got to do this, I got to do this and this. And if I just take a few hours away from it, then I'll realize, you know what, like 90% of that stuff is not important. I should just go back to, to, you know, the key thing. And yeah, I think a big part of just determining what your one thing is for that day or that week is, is just planning ahead a little bit and having some space to think about that. I think it, it, as entrepreneurs and being your own, your own boss, so to speak, it's, there is that pressure to be like, to constantly be on and constantly be doing something, which I definitely feel it's like really hard for me to stop doing stuff. But I, I've noticed recently this year that if I just take a step back, you know, I, every so often I can really get a lot more clarity on what's, what's actually important. Just out of curiosity, when, when you're doing your like morning hour, like for yourself, how do you, how do you, how do you balance that with family life? I basically, I wake up before my wife and my son. So I've just realized like, and this is kind of funny cause I used to being a, a studio guy, like, you know, I used to have my sessions from noon till midnight, you know, and I'd sleep in. I used to think I was not a morning person, but ever since I started just practicing that discipline, I love it. It's like my favorite time of the day now. But yeah, I, you know, my my son usually wakes up seven thirty eight, and my wife gets up with him. And you know, we have a we have an agreement, and my my wife's awesome. Like she watches my son during the day while I work. You know, during kind of normal work hours. And but yeah, anyways, I I know that if I if I start the day based in like chaos or like you know if, if my son wakes up before me it's like it throws my whole day off because I'm just I just need that time to focus and be by myself so I yeah I, I actually set my alarm like an hour before anyone else is going to wake up that's that's how I that's how I balance it and not have it impact my family at all and, and it's great do you work in your house yep you got to separate that stuff you should try that um get like an office like a block or two down the street so you can walk there in like two minutes and that way you have no problems dealing with any type of like family distractions. When you're at work, you're at work, you can turn your phone off and hit ignore all of your wife's calls. <laughs> <laughs> right. That doesn't work at all. I don't adhere to that one bit. But <laughs> um, in theory, it works in my head. And sometimes I try to, but then she just keeps trying to call me. So um, it really helps when I made the switch from not working at the same place I was living. It made a huge difference in my productivity because there was just so many less distractions. And like you said, you know, nothing comes in and interferes with your vibe for the day. You wake up, you get in your zone, you're doing your thing, you're working. And while you're there, you're working. And when you're at home, then you're at home and you're not thinking about work, which is like a constant Mm -hmm. source of contention in my life and my family, because, you know, I have to like turn off my phone when I'm at home or else I'll be sitting there like, oh, I got this idea. I got to text Joey and Al. We got to do this, this and that. I got to reply back to this. And she's just like, "Um, I need your help. Can you take the kid and move him here? And I'm just like, yeah, hold on. Let me just finish this text and she walks right over and just grabs the phone for me and she's like i need your help i'm like sorry <laughs> yeah well that's your classic your classic entrepreneur you brain. yeah, yeah I, <laughs> I don't yeah i'm in my house but yeah I, I do my best to like i have my office in the house and like i don't ever take my laptop out of there i leave my phone in there half the time you know when, when work's done and 
So yeah, it's hard. Yeah, it's hard. Respect for being able to pull that off. Yeah. Well, I'm certainly not perfect, but try. So let's, uh, let's change. All right. So changing gears here. Can you tell us a little bit about hardcore mixing studio? Yeah. So it's, uh, it's basically like a website, a blog, podcasts, and courses um, just to help people with recording and mixing heavy music. So rock and metal, um, similar to what you guys do. And yeah, I'm, I'm just trying to teach people to get better at this stuff. So what do you think is the reason that people think your courses are awesome? Just out of curiosity. You <laughs> feel free to brag, but seriously, like someone listening here for the first time, or who's never heard of you before, why should they check your stuff out other than that we said that it was good? <laughs> well, that's a that's a big uh, credit there. But I think I just try to focus on the stuff that actually matters. I mean, I think there's a lot of stuff out there that is just misinformation and it just kind of like gets people focusing on the wrong things or just having the, mi- the wrong mindset. I mean, I, I read emails and see blog posts about how you should you should never boost you with your EQ or you should, you know, you should only cut and all these rules that I think are just useless. Like my whole thing when I started, this was like, I thought back to, to the experiences I had in the studio that really improved things for me. And those things were always like talking to another pro talking to someone whose work I admired or being in the studio with like an awesome engineer or mixer doing their thing and literally just looking over their shoulder and soaking it all in. That's what I'm trying to do with my courses. So that's why all of my courses are based around like an actual mix session that I've done for, for an actual band, you know, that, you know, that uh, people who are fans of this genre, they would actually recognize these releases. So that's kind of another a plus factor is that, you know, this is, this is real stuff. You know, this isn't, you know, I'm not just recording my own song or like my neighbor's garage band, you know, it's, it's, it's real releases. And then just giving full access to it, like not holding anything back, just being like, this is how I achieve this sound, you know, just as if you are in the room with me going through it. Uh, and I think that's, maybe that's why it's been helpful is it's, I'm not, I'm not trying to like create these rules for mixing or anything. I'm just being like, Hey, this is, you know, I made records professionally. This is how I did it. You can get a full look and do with it what you will, you know? I want to talk a little bit about dispelling bullshit myths uh, that you just touched on for a second. Like, for instance, additive EQ. Mm. On one of our Nail the Mixes, um, I believe it was March, right, Joey? Where Chunk No Captain Chunk, you decided that you were going to use primarily additive EQ just to prove a point. Yeah, I wanted to... I guess what happens, you know, especially... After you do so many albums, I've done like 80 albums, you get bored of certain techniques or, I don't know, you just get bored of the the craft in general. And so sometimes I'll just read about something, you know, I I was reading about additive EQ and, and how, you know, it's supposed to be this school of thought. And I was like, oh, I'll just give it a try. And when I started mixing the song... I approached it with that mindset that I was just going to do as much additive EQ as possible and the least amount of subtractive EQ as possible. And I ended up really liking the mix. And uh, I just went with that same mentality for the rest of the album and it worked out well. That's I, I think that that kind of blew people's minds a little because, as you know, everyone says that you shouldn't do that. What are some of the other myths that you feel like you've dispelled or set your targets on? (laughs) Well, I think 
this is kind of a debate. I mean, I'd like to hear your guys' opinion, but the whole gain staging in the box thing, like I constantly get emails from people asking me like, Hey Jordan, do you set all of your tracks to minus 18 dB before you start mixing? Like I've heard that you have to do this and it's just like, I said, no, I don't worry about that at all. I make sure that stuff's not clipping and <laughs> I mix. Like, I think that people just like, like to me, it's like, sure, that's fine if you want to do that. But like, that's not going to be the thing that makes your mixes sound pro, you know? So that, that's something that I just try to, I don't know, just make it easier for people. Like, yeah, don't, don't run stuff super hot. You don't need to record really hot. Just leave some headroom and continue on like don't make it more complicated than it needs to be i think that the minus 18 thing is there's some waves plugins that are optimized for that level of input yeah and that's it that's i think that's where the whole thing comes from is because there's a some waves plugins optimized for that and it started spreading online that you should do that for all your plugins yeah there was a huge thread. Now, this is a long time ago. There was a very big, I think, mentality-changing thread on gear sluts about gain staging all your faders down at minus 18. And it was like one of those things where, you know, just thousands of comments and it kind of blew up and kind of went viral in a way for a recording post forum. I remember that thread. And the guy was like, hey, you know, I thought about it and I started gain structuring down and setting everything at minus 18 because blah, 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 blah. And then a bunch of people came in. They're like, oh, yeah, I do that, too. And then everybody's like, oh, we should always do this. And now this is the way to gain stage digitally in the box. So, mm -hmm. you know, there's different ways to gain stage and like anything, you know, as long as you use it properly and understand how it works, it doesn't matter how you use it. It's more so, I think, a matter of what is the best workflow for you and how you mix. Yeah, totally. And it's, again, if that's part of someone's workflow, that like that's totally fine. I'm not saying it's necessarily bad. It's just, it's not what I focus on. And, you know, some other things are like some people teach to only, what's the buzzword now? Like, like top down mixing, where you like are always on buses first. Or like mm -hmm. you try to do all of the heavy lifting on buses. That's like, that's the total opposite of what I do. Like I do pretty much all my heavy lifting on individual tracks and I do like a little bit on buses. So again, that's like, I know guys who do that, who have awesome mixes. I don't, maybe some of you guys do that, but again, that's not the thing that's going to fix your mix, right? That's what Nolly does. Okay. But even Nolly will tell you that it's not like written in stone that that's what you should do that's just what he does yeah he's damn good at it too yeah exactly it's it comes down to you know what is your preference but i mean i think the point that i'm trying to make is not that anyway is necessarily really bad or, or the best it's just that like i think that sometimes this stuff is communicated as like this is the magic bullet that's gonna finally make your mixes sound professional and it's just it's just not, you know. <laughs> the only thing that's going to make your mix is professional. Yeah. This one trick. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I knew it. If I just put L1 in everything, it would be perfect. Yeah. <laughs> well, fuck it. Do it. L1, everything, forever. No other plugins, ever. <laughs> we try really, really hard to break people out of that kind of thinking. It's so contrary to getting better, in my opinion, to focus on like one thing like that being like the change maker, I guess. Uh, however, I will say that when I f first started gaining down my tracks 6 dB with the trim plugin in Pro Tools uh, and giving myself a ton more headroom, my mixes did get way better. 
But I think that's just because I was clipping like shit before. Which is ironic because now we clip everything. I think that uh, some dolls have like affected, I want to say like mixing knowledge in general. Like I know for a, a long period of time, probably about five years ago or so, Pro Tools had like this internal clipping ceiling uh, on every channel whereas like Cubase didn't and so you had like two different schools of thoughts where uh, I don't know I learned on Cubase and I always mixed on Cubase so I was able to you know you can push something over over zero without losing uh, without chopping off your your audio data whereas in Pro Tools at that same time you would have to stay under zero or you would uh, you would start chopping off the the samples so um, I think it's been interesting to see how software has sort of affected like the knowledge of the craft yeah that was something with like like I think with like Pro Tools HD with the TDM systems right it was, there actually there was like a zero ceiling right and yeah 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 all right so on the topic of game staging I do think that not fucking it up is crucial, <laughs> but I do think that spending way too much time on it is also dumb. Yep. Uh, thank you. I have spoken. <laughs> cool. Agreed. Great talking. Great talking to you guys. I'll see you later. So gain um, staging with Al Levy. Yeah. Actually, we do have a gain staging course that Joey did, and our fast tracks. And uh, I actually learned a lot about gain staging from how you guys do it in Cubase. It kind of blew my mind. It's so different than how I do it in Pro Tools. But I tried using the trim plugin to kind of do it the way you guys do it, and it was kind of kind of cool. Did you ever mix into a summing mixer, AL? I had one for a, a brief moment, yes. Okay, because a lot of guys, I, I feel like at least for me, that kind of developed for from doing that, mixing into a summing mixer where you're keeping your fader at zero. And um, Joey just likes to clip and limit everything to get a super aggressive sound. So I think he doesn't like to automate anything below minus six. So it's kind of like, I think it happened kind of out of necessity because it's more convenient to mix at that level. And it just makes sense if you mixed analog at all. So having your stuff down at like minus 18, it just feels so, or even minus 12, it feels so weird when you're writing automation to go from like 18, minus 18 to minus 16.5, now back down to minus 18. It's just like... Could you explain to Jordan how you guys do it? Because I feel like I'll butcher it. Sure. Okay. And also for anyone that's not familiar, just because we're talking about it. Yeah. Okay. For sure. Um, so basically we do this. So Joey and I, we both like to keep our faders at zero when we mix in Cubase. Uh, Jordan, what DAW are you on? Pro Tools. Okay. Pro Tools. So what we do is we keep our faders at zero because you can go over the, you know, the maximum of headroom into the red or whatever. As long as you turn down the master channel at some point, like we do it on the input, you can turn it down to minus 12. Then you get all that extra headroom and you can really push the crap out of your channels and it's not going to distort after it goes past uh, zero. So we keep everything at zero super loud so we can not have to write a lot of complicated automation. So you're, you're going you know zero to plus one or plus 1.5. You're not going minus 18 to minus 17. So you have a much higher fader uh, resolution because faders are logarithmic, I believe. So what ends up happening is all of your levels are kind of at zero. Your everything looks like it's all red and maxed out on the track side, but when you look at the master bus, you know you're hitting minus six approximately at peak level. 
on the master, and then we come in and throw it in and slam it into a mastering chain. So we use a lot of limiters and clipping and things like that and really, really push the mix up super loud on the channel side so we can keep the faders all at zero because uh, you have to kind of like really crush your drum mix up and clip it up to get it to, to work that way where you can keep your guitars at zero and limit them up and et cetera, and then bring down the master channel. And uh, it allows us to get just a very in-your-face sound. Uh, is there anything I'm missing, Joey? Yeah, I think that's pretty much it. I mean, the, it's just a really basic concept that you're going to do everything relative to itself. That That's the main message is the relativity of volume rather than, you know, like being able to think like when you hear something, how many decibels up or down do you want it to go? And like knowing what that number is in your head. And it all starts with, basically for our type of music, it starts with a kick and snare, right? You get the kick and snare at your zero level, and then everything is either plus three, four, five, six, or minus, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six from there. I mean, it's it's going to be rare that you have anything less or more than that. So, you know, the, the fader range in Cubase goes from plus six to negative infinity, so you can pretty much if you have everything zeroed out you can pretty much go up and down from that zero point and end up with a pretty pretty good balanced mix and then everything from there just is automation so that's that's the basics huh that's interesting yeah see in pro tools to recreate that we need to use the trim plugin right yeah because you, you you know you compress something you put a distortion eq on it now you're you know you're blowing over zero already whereas in cubase you know i can keep my fader at zero, even if the the output is going over zero, and I can send it to a group track and then adjust the pre-gain into the group track down so that I'm not going over zero and uh, I'm not losing anything by doing that. Like the, you know, the peak data is preserved perfectly. You, I like to say this, the easiest way to understand it in Cubase is that you could turn a track up plus 100 and then send it to a bus and then turn that bus down negative 100 and you would have the same result. Right. There'd be no difference. Right. So so is it mainly just that you just like the way, like the fader algorithm, like around that that range? Is that like the main thing? Is it you're just doing small automation moves? Yeah, it's it's basically the the thought process of relativity. You know, my I want my guitars one dB louder than the snare, or one dB you know quieter than the snare, or whatever. You figure it. It makes writing automation so much faster because, like I said, you know, you have a lot more because faders are logarithmic. I believe is is that correct? Is it logarithmic or is it a different math? No, that's right. I'm not, Sounds I'm, right. Okay, I'm not a math major, and I don't want to say something wrong and have my programmer death stare me. <laughs> All right, so it's logarithmic. So faders are logarithmic, which means means that the scale between zero to six is much, you have just, you know, a lot more range in terms of how, you know, like precision of the fader. So it's easier to get like those decimal values than if you're down at minus 18 or minus 20 or, you know, going way down. The distance from minus 18 to minus 20 is very small compared to, you know, zero to plus two, right? Like you have, there's more resolution between zero and plus two than there is from negative 18 to negative 20. That's even though those are both two decibel difference, the resolution is different on the fader itself. Yes. So within that range, that negative six to plus six range, it's very easy to, you know, um, automate things and also kind of to learn what works 
with your tones. Like if you have your snare EQ'd and compressed a certain way and your guitar EQ'd and limited a certain way, you can sort of start to predict, you know, what's going to happen when you hit the chorus, you know, maybe your snare, you know, as you work on a few songs, you're going to start to learn like, okay, guitars always have to go up like plus one if I want something to sound a little bit more in your face. Or, you know, like you learn what you want to accomplish and you learn like what moves it takes to do it. And it kind of becomes more predictable, I guess, which is totally the opposite of like, you know, reaching for a knob and like listening with your ears and and turning knobs and, and mixing like I would almost call that like mixing blind, you know, and there's nothing against either way. It's just a different way to work. You know, I got to say that, uh. Back before I was better with my gain staging, back in the olden day, I would end up getting to a point where I was clipping the shit out of the master bus. And so before automation was written, I would just select all on a group and then turn it down, you know, bring the faders down like 6 dB, like I was told to do. But I noticed that it never quite sounded the same. Like, the balances were different. Even if it said that it was, or 12 dB or something, that it was uh, bringing everything down evenly, it didn't seem right. I don't know. Have you ever noticed that, Jordan? Um, no, I, I never really had the problem where my stuff was, was always in the red, though. So, yeah, I never I did. Had, really had to do that. Because I'm a loser. <laughs> <laughs> Flog me. No, I'm talking about a long time ago. Yeah. I used to have that problem. I know what you're saying. Guys, there's only one way to mix. Everything in the red and then print. <laughs> well, I guess I'm just pointing out that it seems to me like what they're saying is right. Yeah. That yeah. the resolutions change. Yeah. Because it never, if I would grab everything and turn it all down, it never quite had the same balance as it did just wasn't the same. Right. It was very, very sad. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder if that's because it was like clipping it slightly or truncating it or, you know. Like, I don't know. Because that would make sense. It's kind of like when you turn the mastering limiter off, all of a sudden you're like, what the hell happened to my balance? Like, what's, what's going on? This doesn't sound right at all. So it, that's interesting. That's definitely interesting. I've never really mixed that much in Pro Tools, and I would have to experience it and hear what you're hearing to agree or disagree. Well, also, let me point out that Older versions of Pro Tools, you would just breathe on a channel and it would clip. Like, <laughs> when I started on 8, it would clip so easily. It was really, really... And this was before I really knew how to properly gain stage. So it was just like... You just start throwing an EQ on a kick and you're in the red. Wow, that sucks. <laughs> I don't necessarily want to change the top... Well. Not to lie, I want to change the topic. All right, change um, the topic. <laughs> <laughs> because I'm kind of curious about this, because we get this question so many times, and I, I'm hoping that you have maybe a different or, or interesting answer here. People are always wondering, you know, how do I market myself? How do I grow my brand? And uh, I think it's it's easy to get this wrong nowadays, be, thanks to social media, because it's just so easy to to sort of like, you know, make a graphic and post something or make a, you know, a tweet or a Facebook post. And, and people think that they're marketing themselves. And I, I don't think that that's necessarily the, the key or the secret. And so I'm curious, what, what kind of tips or tricks do you have on that? Well, 
I would say that when I was coming up, I, I didn't do a good job of marketing myself per se. Like I didn't really, I don't know. I didn't really have to, like I just worked really hard and I was, I was in bands or I was friends with lots of bands. So that kind of, I got my earliest clients that way, even though I, I sucked at it. But as I got better, like those bands just kept coming back and coming back and word of mouth spread. And it was just that like, for me, it wasn't marketing. It was just word of mouth. And it was, it was literally like, I just was really busy because I had recorded like every band within a three hour drive, you know? And it just like, that just spreads. And I, I, I worked hard on every single project. Like I would not let something out of the door unless, you know, I had, I felt like I did everything I possibly could to, to make it sound good, regardless of what band came in. So I think that was like, that was my strategy. And it was just, it was just word of mouth and, and proof, you know, all I had was forever, including now it's just a simple website with a list of credits. Like I never advertised. I think the most I did maybe is like reaching out to, you know, like the mastering engineer, Troy Glessner that I used, I sent, sent stuff to him to master for years, like probably three years. And I knew that he did a lot of stuff for like tooth and nail and solid state records. So after years of sending my stuff to him for mastering, I, you know, I reached out and was like, Hey man, I know you do a lot of work with this label. Maybe you can like throw my name in. And, you know, a few months later, uh, I, I got a solid state record to mix. So that's like maybe the one thing I did is just leveraging connections, but that's it. Like as far as online stuff, I, I'm kind of the wrong guy to ask cause I, I never did that. That's actually kind of impressive. Yeah. And I think that's a, that's, it's important because there's a lot of people who, you know, and we get to talk to a lot of our subscribers on a one-on-one basis through the, the one-on-one sessions we have and have a lot of people who are like, you know, asking me, how do I advertise what, you know, and I'm like, I mean, you don't, you shouldn't even be thinking about advertising yet until people know your name. And then when they do see your name in that ad, then they'll act on it. But they're, if they don't know who you are and they see this random ad of this person they've never heard of before, yeah. why would they interact with it? So I, th- I always tell people, you know, focus on building the raw materials, you know, make make your skills known and do it in a way that's impressive and, and do a good job and, and to be a good guy. And I think that will go much further than, you know, posting, you know, what time should I post my Facebook post? No, it doesn't matter yeah. as much as, as the person. So. <laughs> I think there's a lot of truth to that. I mean, there's probably, I mean, think of retrospectively back here in your careers, guys. I mean, there has to be at least a 10 to one, if not 20 or 30 to one ratio of bands, like where you went out and you hustled them and tried to get them in the door. And like, they'd be like, yeah, yeah, I'll check it out. Blah, blah, blah. Versus ones that are like, dude, I heard from so-and-so you made that band sound great. And they're freaking terrible. Cause we play live with them every weekend. And if you can make them sound good, we got to come work with you. So let's book some time. It has to be at least a 10 to one ratio because I think of every demo CD as a producer, I handed out to like a local band at like a show or something like that versus the amount of people that came in via word of mouth. And it's not even comparable. I mean, obviously you have to start somewhere, but for every like 50 bands you hit up, a very small percentage of them will come in and try you until they hear something that you've done from one of their friends and then they'll all line up like ducks. Well, there's definitely a chicken or the egg thing here, but I got to say that while I agree with you guys completely, if it wasn't for my insane hustle at the very beginning... Um, well, of course. I, I mean, like, I hustled harder than a lot of people, and it paid off. And then my hustle shifted to other 
to other places once people were coming into the studio. But so, yes, you're correct that at a certain point, once your name is out there, it's not that your hustle dies down, but you do you don't need to approach people in person quite as much because people are talking about you. So Yeah, you got to put out work worth talking about. That's exactly. Yeah, so really all you're doing, if you think about it, really not much is changing. The what you're doing when you're going out there on your own is you're starting conversation about yourself. Once your work is out there, people are talking about you. Either way, you're in the conversation. And that's the key point, is that you're in the conversation. So if uh, if no one is doing it for you, you absolutely have to go get it started yourself. If you have done enough badass work to where uh, people like it and play it and listen to it and enjoy it, well, then you probably don't need to do it as much. But the thing that hasn't changed there is that people are talking about you. So... To me, that's kind of the key. Yeah. Well, do we want to switch and take some audience questions here? Sure. Here's the first one. This is from Rodney. And sorry, Rodney, I'm not going to even try to pronounce your last name. He said, any kind of details on the Intervals record of Voice Within? Is there anything about that that stood out to you about that record? Like in, in terms of... I don't know. That's kind of a bad question. Let's skip it. Well, no, it's... I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I think I could no, say... What stood out is that uh, Aaron, the, the the main guy, the guitar player in Intervals, is is amazing, just like a joy to to track with. So, I mean, you know, we all we're all familiar with the ways to cheat guitar performances, right? And and that's cool. But like when you listen to that Intervals record, it's it's like he's playing that stuff. You know, it's it's totally legit. So that's one thing that stands out. Man, it makes such a difference when you have a player who really delivers the goods yeah i think that it's we talk about it a lot but i feel like until people actually experience what it's like to work with a great when you have a great player they just won't get it yeah um (laughs) here's one from jeremy jonkus which is how did jordan approach working with intervals as a producer and mixing engineer differently from any other project any special goal you wanted to achieve also, what was the guitar chain on the In Time EP? Okay, so the first part, I think the approach is like, it kind of goes along with what I was saying. Like, Aaron's such a good musician and player. It's like, there's certain projects where, as a producer and engineer, like, you need to put yourself more into the process. But when you're dealing with guys like that, you almost need to, like, have the discipline to kind of stay out of the way, you know? And and make sure that you're not messing up the feel of his of his performances, you know, f- for the sake of quote perfection, right? Like when you get a player like that, it's going to he's going to be able to play the whole verse at a time, you know, or or at least most of it and you want to try and capture that and preserve it and and not kill that, you know, in the name of, you know, just using certain techniques or trying to make it too perfect. So that I mean, hopefully hopefully that makes sense and as far as the guitar chain, it was Axe Effects on both of the the albums I did with them. I don't remember like any specific settings or anything, but it was it was just direct from the Axe Effects. Well, interestingly enough, uh, Kyle Presky right here said to you, "I've noticed, or to us, I noticed that you, meaning me, Joel and Joey, like to reamp with Tone Forge and other great programs. While I believe I've noticed Jordan." go more the Axe Effects route. I would be interested to know what some of his favorite 
amps, cabs, sims for building axe effects tones, or any little tips for dialing in a tone that doesn't pump with low tuned chugs <laughs> and leaves a nice crisp mid range. Okay, th- this th- yeah, that's <laughs> that's wrong because I don't. Uh, the only times I've I've only used axe effects on a couple records, only when the band has one and wants to use it. Most of like my discography is is real amps and cabs. So, nice. Yeah, maybe they have just only seen those things but yeah like that i've used axe effects on the intervals and like one other one other band i'm actually i'm not a huge fan of it so (laughs) neither am i (laughs) i gotta say i used to own one and i tried at one point doing a tone pack with them i feel like it takes four times as long to get something usable yes that's my problem man and that's my problem with a lot of like these plugins is like and i don't use a lot but the ones i've tried it's just like it drives me nuts like I just, I give up. Like I've tried to like tweak the axe effects and it's like, I don't want to mess with all this stuff. Like just give me the, the bass mid and treble and like <laughs> that's it. Like just <laughs> let me get a tone in, in like five or 10 minutes. Like I don't I want to spend two hours like t- fiddling with all this stuff. It drives me nuts. We got to, we're going to, Joey, we should send him some Tone Forge plugins. Let's if, do it. If you don't like, uh, if you don't like messing with stuff endlessly, yeah. you'll probably <laughs> That's what like Tone Forge is for. That'd be great. Yeah. I usually just open it and close it when I use it. So I don't even care what the EQ is set at because <laughs> it usually works. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, yeah, that was a, one of the other things that we did with it is uh, we left it. Uh, the default settings when you open it are the ones that I use. Nice. Now, of course, you can tweak it and do whatever you want, but. I made it so it's kind of like gain reduction too. It's like when you open gain reduction, it's set how I use it, and same thing with. So you can literally, you can kind of mix a song just by opening the plugins, yeah, to some degree. <laughs> yeah, I like that philosophy. I mean, it's the same thing we do at Drum Forge. We try to make things that allow you to be creative and not get in the way, meaning you don't get in the way of yourself because you're sitting there trying to play with the tube bias or some exactly. bullshit that really only affects point zero five percent of the sound so it, it it gets easy i think a lot of designers they like to add features because it looks cool but i'm more for utilitarian kind of stuff because what i'm mixing i'm all about speed the more songs i mix the more money i make so the faster i can get a sound dialed in the better my life is yep. so i kind of like think that a lot of tools should be something that helps you do that and make music and not worry so much about the technical nonsense absolutely couldn't agree more with that so yeah, Kyle, he's not into it. So, uh, all right, here's one from Our farm. Ben- <laughs> Benjamin Mueller's wondering: Do you use saturation, like tape tube stuff, on snare? Yay or nay? Yeah, on snare, I love uh, Massey Tape Head plugin, and I also just use. Uh, here's a, a good tip for any Pro Tools users: try out the just the stock Lo-Fi plugin. Yes. Use the like distortion slider on that with like just a little bit on snare. It's like it, it's killer. It's awesome. Dude, that's a great plugin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's. I use it on tons of stuff now. It's it's one of my favorites. All right, here's one from Daniel Joseph Bush or Bush. <laughs> I don't know. What do you miss, if anything, since downsizing from a larger studio to your bedroom studio or house studio? Ah, uh, that's a good question. Um, what do I miss? I miss just like the quietness of it. But it's like like my other studio was was treated really well. You know, whereas at home now it's like. I can hear what else is going on in the house. I can hear like the air conditioning. It's like all that stuff. But in a way it's almost, it's almost kind of works in my favor because it makes me work harder on the mix. You know what I mean? It's kind of funny. Like I feel like even though I had a way better environment in my old studio, it's like 
my mixing room at home, I feel like I'm actually mixing better because I'm kind of, it's mimicking more of like the average person's listening environment, you know? So it's, it's almost making me focus on really what's important to the mix and not maybe not focusing too much on like the, the tiny details that don't really matter as much. Hopefully that, that makes sense. So it's in some ways I miss it, but in other ways it's like, man, this is actually, it's, it's helping me in a way. Yeah. I I have the same philosophy and and the same thoughts, uh, share the same thoughts as you there. And actually I, I kind of have always worked that way. So it's worked out pretty well for me. So Mm -hmm. here's one from Lucas and it's, how do you use decapitator in your mixes? How about do you use decapitator yeah. in your mixes yeah. first? I've started using it recently. I think maybe uh, maybe anyone who's following my stuff, like maybe he's been following it. I used to mix on like Pro Tools 8, so I had uh, these TDM plugins like Crane Song Phoenix and the Heat plugin that was built into Pro Tools. I was getting a lot of my saturation from there. And now on my new rig with Pro Tools 12, it's all native. And so I'm, I'm having to replace some of these plugins that I used to get that I was used to before. So Decapitator has been one of them, which I really like. So I think usually people are asking me this in the context of like, how am I using that instead of the other stuff? So I pretty much just use it like in a really subtle way. So I just, I just turn it to like one or two, probably not even two, just just like around one. And I'm just trying to get like a little bit of extra life and body out of it. And so I just turn it up a little bit and I just switch between the different models and whichever one gives me what I'm looking for. I just go with that and, and move on. I keep it pretty subtle. I've, I've never used it for like aggressive stuff yet, but I haven't had that much time with it yet either, but that's where I'm at with it now. Uh, let me just say that I feel like Decapitator is one of the greatest plugins ever made. Yeah. I'm loving it so far. Like it's, I have it, I've been using it on drums, guitars, vocals, like it's it's been great. I mean, there's other great distortions and saturators out there too, but there's something about Decapitator that it just works great. Here's one from Jamie Peterson, which is, what was the best part about mixing Gavin Harrison's drums on the new Nick Johnston album? The best part was they sounded freaking awesome. They, <laughs> they, the room sound is like was ridiculous man like it it sounded so good like for me there's nothing better than being able to turn up the room track with like almost nothing on it and have it just sound awesome (laughs) i think he recorded in like this old church or something but i mean and how rare is that that you can just turn up a room track and it sounds awesome it's ridiculously rare usually the room track is adds nothing (laughs) most of the stuff i get so yeah it was the performance is awesome like hardly if you listen to the mix there's like hardly any samples tucked in there it's all you know just natural drums and it was great to mix i i loved mixing every song because of of how the drum sounded so real quick this is my my question is um since you said that you normally use real amps and cabs what are some of your go-tos and i know that the guys listening are going to want to know if you have a go-to mic position on the cab yeah so my go-to if you listen to like any of my discography for the last like five years it's a 5150 into a mesa 2x12 mic'd with a sm57 oh and a maxon tube screamer in front i should say but that's like i've made so many records like that and yeah i just i position the mic like i start with it right where the what's it called like the dust cat meets the cone um yep right where it meets there and just if it's too bright then i move it more away from the center for if I need more brightness I move it towards the center just basic stuff like that that yeah that's like 95% of the stuff I've done is with that chain um, and anything that's maybe more 
pop rock or just straight up rock stuff, not metal. Um, it was always the JCM 800. I had those two amps in my studio and that covered like pretty much anything I, I needed. The JCM, is it modded or straight up? No, it was just a, it was a straight up. Nice. Yeah. Classic. Dude, that's the, those two rigs right there are so classic and awesome. I often wonder why people bother with so many boutique amps when yep. those two amps right there aren't that expensive and will get you most of the way on almost every record. Absolutely, yeah. So I've uh, I've owned both at one point in time. What kind of 5150? The original. Good. Yep. Dude, you can get those for like 500 or 400 bucks on eBay. It's incredible. Yeah, that's what mine cost me, I think. And I sold it for the same amount. I uh, A buddy of mine who has a Kemper, I got him to do a profile of it and sounds like the same rig I used to use. So I did that and then I sold the, sold the amp. Nice. We were, Joel and I were talking earlier about whether or not we should sell our amps. <laughs> it's true. Not because I don't love my amps. It's just, I never use them anymore because all I do is mix and master. And if I actually had to re-amp something, I would definitely pay somebody else to do it because it's a waste of my time. Right. Yeah. That's, that's where I was at too. Once I started doing only mixing, I was like, I don't need these things. So it's hard to let them go though. I won't sell my Black Star or my 6505 though, just for the record. <laughs> well, I have like a Bogner Ecstasy and uh, I love it, but like I haven't used that thing in years. Yeah. Maybe it's time to go. Maybe. It's hard to let go of Dude, things, it hurts. It? Like I'm like saying this and like I'm feeling pain on the inside. <laughs> <laughs> like I'm, like it makes me physically uncomfortable to say this. <laughs> you know, it's a good, I forget where I heard this, but. When it comes to like selling stuff or if you don't want to let something go, you got to ask yourself the question like, let's just say you could sell that Bogner amp for $2,000. Ask yourself, if, I could. if you didn't have that amp and you had $2,000, would you spend $2,000 to get that amp again? And if no. the answer is no, then you should just sell the amp. <laughs> <laughs> it's not just no, it's fuck no. <laughs> I wouldn't buy any of those amps. Yep. Honestly, I wouldn't buy any amps. Well, there you go. Yeah. Uh, sorry, listeners. <laughs> I just wouldn't. I am perfectly fine with amp sims now. So that's a good... Hey, I like how you think. Do you have any more uh, great great uh, tidbits of advice like that that can help me, uh, <laughs> help me sell off my life and feel good about it? <laughs> uh, I don't know. Just... That's my only tip, man. I'm sorry. All right. Well, hey, that, that, was, that was a good one. <laughs> Because I have a Soldano also that I think's got to go. Yeah, you could probably get rid of that. It's so good, though. All right, well. <laughs> I'm getting really upset by this conversation. You know, I got, yeah, you know like, <laughs> what really, to, like, I got kind of bummed the, uh, last year, or I guess it was almost two years ago now, uh, when on the last Silver Scene record, because we had, like, we had all these amps. We had, you know, the 5150, the 800, like, multiple 800s, mm -hmm. uh, Soldanos, like, all these awesome amps and cabs mic'd up. And then the assistant engineer I hired, I got him to bring in his Kemper and we like ended up using Kemper on like half of the album. <laughs> it was like, I was, I, up until that point, I was such like a, a real amps guy. Like the Axe FX was never as good to me and all this stuff. And I, I was like, yeah, you know, bring your Kemper, but we'll probably use all the real amps, you know, but, and then of course, what do you know? Kemper ends up, ends up winning half the time. And so ever since then I'm, I'm, I'm kind of switched. I'm open to amp sims now, but it's taken a while. Well, welcome to the dark side. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was thinking. I was thinking the exact same thing. You know what, though? My Kemper sounds great. What can I say? Yeah, I think if I was going to buy a guitar amp again, I would I would do that. It's just 
makes so much sense. Joel, are you uh, are you like racking yourself with anxiety hearing this? Yeah, I'll never sell all of my amps because what if I want to pick up? Not like I have time anymore, but what if I actually want to pick up a guitar and play it through something? Um, <laughs> what? <laughs> there's something like <laughs> really? playing through Sims just doesn't feel right to me. And, uh, when's the last uh, time just, you picked up a guitar? I picked it up this morning to put it in its case so I could move it down the street. <laughs> <laughs> when's the last time you picked up a guitar and played it? Uh, on somebody else's record. Um, probably the last time I actually recorded something when that was, I don't remember. Because <laughs> I just mix now and do this. I don't know. Don't ask me difficult questions that upset That's me. Same here, dude. <laughs> In my mind, I play guitar every day for like four hours, but then reality is like, I, I just walk past it every day and look at it and I'm like, tomorrow. <laughs> then I'm like, oh yeah, what's that thing in the corner? What's it called? I don't remember because I don't have time. <laughs> yeah, I haven't played guitar Sad. in a while. Oh well. All right, well, um, I'm selling my amps and thank you. Uh, Jordan, um, do you have any, uh, any URLs you would like to plug here? We would like to get all your info out to our listeners yeah uh i'll just keep it simple just check out hardcoremusicstudio.com all the stuff is there you know right on the front i have this uh free mixing cheat sheet that you can sign up to my email list you get that you'll get a bunch of free videos as well so that's the main thing hardcoremusicstudio.com sign up to my list and that's where i uh give out all my stuff and his videos are really good so Thank you. <laughs> Do it. <laughs> thanks. Watch them. Well, thanks for coming on, man. You rule. Yeah, thanks for having me. Happy to do it. Yes, thanks. It was awesome. Yeah, love talking to you. I talked to you once before on Skype, and I think we ended up talking for like 90 minutes. Yeah. You've got a lot to say, so, and thanks for coming on, and... Uh, yeah, well, thanks, guys. We'll, we'll keep in touch for sure. Boom. The Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by Mick DSP, professional audio plugins. For over 15 years, Mick DSP has continued producing industry-acclaimed and award-winning software titles. Visit MCDSP. .com for more information. The podcast is also brought to you by Slate Digital. All the pro plugins, one low monthly price. Visit slatedigital.com for more information. Thank you for listening to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit urm.academy slash podcast and subscribe today.